0: Alright, All right, will you join me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, just the ability to come together after a, maybe a long week or a busy week, stressful week. And just to start off a new week right. And we pray that you would be here with us, Lord. Pray your spirit would move and in our hearts and our minds. And Father, we ask that the enemy would not have an opportunity to take that word away from our hearts, our minds, our ears. That whether it's hot or distractions, a lot of things to think about or worry about, Lord, we pray that we would just settle our hearts and minds and ears to you today and give you this time, Lord. Lord. We give you praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now many of you may remember the movie Saving Private Ryan. How many of you saw that movie? Okay, a good number of you. For those of you who uh, have not seen it yet, um, I won't recommend it because uh, it's pretty graphic and violent. Um, So uh, I don't want to... Uh, be accused of promoting a movie uh, to young ears and eyes that is graphic, so I won't recommend it, but I will say that uh, it is a fictional account based on some true facts, some true stories. Uh, The movie is about eight soldiers who survived D-Day, okay? And they were assigned an impossible mission. And this mission was to find one soldier named Private James Ryan, find him and return him safely because three of his brothers who were also serving in the war uh, during that time died. They were killed in action within a certain amount of close proximity of time. And so in the movie, the secretaries who were typing out the letters to the loved ones, to the parents, in this case the mom, would be receiving three letters at one time. And so the movie was based on a true story of four brothers who did serve in World War II in different uh, branches and different uh, areas of the military, but they served in World War II. And at the time, it was believed that three of the four died in action. And so there were orders to get the remaining lone brother safely home so that the mom or the parents, the family, would not have to lose all the sons. So in real life, actually, they able, they were also able to save the lone son. And, and actually, in, in the story itself, the one of the brothers were believed to have been killed, shot down over, I believe it was Burma, but actually was found alive later but so they actually end up having two surviving sons. But anyways, the movie is based on this this story of uh, brothers who died in action. There was one remaining soldier. And so these eight soldiers who survived D-Day had another mission, an impossible mission, to find this one soldier and bring him home safely. Now, spoiler alert. Now, most of you didn't raise your hands, So here is a spoiler alert, okay? It's been 24 years since the movie came out, so if you haven't seen it by now, this is not officially a spoiler alert, okay? But if you don't want to know what happened, uh, you can close your ears to this moment or not, I don't know. But um, the mission in the movie was successful, okay? They were able to save Private Ryan, but it came at a heavy price, only two of the eight soldiers who were sent out to save Private Ryan survived the mission. Six of them died during the mission. So tragically, of course, this part of the movie is not based on fiction. It's not entirely fictional Wars are filled with examples and situations, tragic situations, where the many are sacrificed for the few. Uh, some of the uh, accounts, if you, you've followed or you, you're interested in war, you've, you've heard these stories where many soldiers died saving a few people. During the movie, at the end, uh, the soldiers in their mission, uh, they voiced to their, their leader, you know, is this worth it? You know, we have moms too. Why are we doing this for one soldier? And you're, if you're watching the movie, you're after the movie, you're kind of left thinking, was it worth it for one soldier? These six men who died for the sake of the one. Is it or was it worth it? To what lengths would we go for one person? What lengths would you go for one person? And you probably would say, well, it depends on the person, right? If it's a loved one, someone you really love, maybe I'll go through great lengths for this person. If it's someone that I kind of like, ah, there's an extent. If it's someone I really don't like, no lengths at all, right? That's kind of how we operate, how we often think. What lengths would Jesus go to for one person? We're going to take a look at a story in Mark, so we can continue our our study in Mark. And we're going to see, as we go through and we see Mark's journey, as we see Jesus' journey to the cross, we're going to see this story of the lengths that Jesus goes to for one person. Now, where we left off last time in Mark, it's been a couple of weeks. Um, the last time we were at Mark, Jesus quieted the storm, the raging winds and the waves. You remember that? He quieted the storms. He rebuked the wind and the waves. He said to the wind and the waves, "Hush, be still." And the wind calmed. The waves became became perfectly calm. Now, I don't know how many of you, how many of you parents, after hearing that message, you really wanted to be like Jesus. After that message, you wanted to be like Jesus. So when you got home, and when your kids were really loud, and making a lot of noise, you said, hush, be still. Anyone, did that work for anybody? No one. Didn't even try. Yeah, probably not. That probably would have been bad application to the message, right? You may want to try that later today. I don't know. Maybe God will answer your prayer. We'll see. But that's where we left off. Jesus' divine authority silenced the wind, calmed the waves. And today we're going to look at why Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee anyways. Why did it go through that circumstance? that situation life threatening situation and we're going to see how these two stories parallel each other so if you have your bibles turn to mark chapter 5 and we're going to start in verse 1 and it reads like this and they came to the other side of the se- other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. and when he had come out of the boat immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough even enough to subdue him, and constantly... Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. Now let me stop here and let's understand the scenario. Again, picture the scenario. Jesus and his disciples cross the sea at night. The disciples probably have no idea where they're going or why they're going. Probably about five plus miles across the sea. They survive a life-threatening storm, if you will. The wind and the waves were so violent, it was tossing filling the boat with water. Jesus quiets the wind, calms the waves, and they're left in fear and awe of Jesus. They're thinking, who is in the boat with us? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So they arrive safely to their destination. That alone is enough to talk about, right? That alone is like, Wow, that's incredible. What's going to happen next? Now they sail across the sea to a pagan Gentile region known as the Decapolis. That's a, an area region of 10 cities laying along the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee that is deeply Hellenized, very Greek influenced. So there's a lot of idol worship there. Okay, There's a lot of uh, temples in, the, in that area. So, you picture this scene, the disciples must be wondering what are we doing here? What are us Jews doing in this heavily Gentile, very Hellenized region, this area? Well, all of a sudden, they're greeted by a naked, crazy man running up to them on the shore. Now, this sounds eerily similar to like Santa Monica. I don't know if you've ever been around in that area. I've probably seen maybe Legion's cousin or something like that in that area. But imagine this scene. They just get off the boat. They're coming onto the shore. And here's this man with no clothes on, crazy, going up to Jesus. What do we know about this man? He has an unclean spirit or he's demon-possessed. Given that this region, very Gentile region, a lot of idol worship and stuff, that's probably not uncommon in that area. He's being tormented. He was not able to function in normal society. He kept people from passing along the roads. We know that from the other gospel account. He was unable to be restrained with shackles and chains. He would break them. He broke them in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. He lived in the tombs in the mountain area. If you wonder what does that mean, well, there, there was there were tombs that carved out in the mountains in the area, and there were some who were very poor who lived in those tombs as well. So he was a social outcast, and he would cry out day and nights loudly, and would beat himself, cut himself up with the rocks and the stones. Now you may think this sounds a little straight out of Hollywood, some out of some something out of some kind of horror flick. I say, yeah, probably does. A lot of our fiction, a lot of our entertainment is rooted in some sense of truth, some sense of some things going on. I have heard of accounts where people were demon possessed and they had strength that went beyond their normal level of strength, that it took many men to, to restrain someone who, had, who was not very strong normally. So these things have happened. But what does the Bible say about demon possession? I'll just touch on this real quickly. What does it mean to be possessed by evil spirits? We know from earlier in Mark one twenty six, demon possession involves an evil spirit or this demon that enters a person and can manipulate a person's mind and body. We know in Matthew 12.43 and in Luke 11, Jesus spoke of unclean spirits entering, leaving, and re entering people. And you may think, well, can a Christian be demon-possessed? I would say, well, no. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, in you, if you are a believer in Christ and you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, I do not believe, and there's no biblical precedence for it, to believe that a demon can also be present in you. So my answer to that would be, absolutely not. But it's a real thing and it's biblical. And we see this man who's tormented. But not just one, but many. Verse 6. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I try not to do it in any kind of demonic voice. I don't want to speak you all out, okay? And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. It's interesting, this demon drives the man toward Jesus and bows before him. We have a similar situation, if you remember, in Mark one twenty four. In Mark one twenty four, Jesus is in the synagogue, and a person with an unclean spirit is there. And the demon, through the man, says, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Compare that with this scenario in, in, in verse 7. The demon also says, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. We see in both instances here, the demons cry out, which in modern terms, if we want to say it in modern terms, leave us alone, stay out of our business. Jesus, what do you have to do with us here? What are you doing here? Mark again clearly points out, even the demons know who Jesus is. They cannot help but say, You are the Holy One of God. We know who you are. Some speculate are the demons trying to blow Jesus' cover or not? I I don't know. It's only speculation. But what we do know is the demons know for certain they know who Jesus is. Yet they're in an unrepentant state of evil. And rebellion. There is no repentance for them. But they also know their outcome, what's going to happen to them. We see Jesus asks this demon its name. Now, this is the only instance in the Gospel accounts where we see Jesus asking the demon, What is its name? The demon responds, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, we don't assume that legion is the, the proper name, like there's some demon named legion around. We think that he brings out this name to represent that we are many. What is a legion? Especially for a Roman audience who's reading this gospel account of Mark, or the people in the day, they know a legion represents a group of thousands of Roman soldiers. Okay, So that name represents thousands of Roman soldiers. And so when the demon says legion, or we are many. But notice what the demon does. It entreats Jesus. It begs Jesus, implores Jesus not to send them out of the country or out of the region. Luke records the demons beg Jesus to not send them into the abyss, the abusos, the bottomless pit, this abode of the demonic spirits, the demons. They say, don't send us there. Have you come to torment us? Have you come to destroy us? Don't send us there. It's interesting they know. Their destination. They know what's going to happen to them. It's important for us to understand that Satan and the demons are destined to be in torment and destruction. That's why they implore them, Jesus, don't destroy us. Don't send us now. Have you come to torment us now? The conclusion is not undetermined. There is a place for Satan and the demons. They will be forever in torment. But it must be known also. So too for all who reject Jesus as Lord. Who have rejected the God of creation. That those who have rejected Christ, they will not have eternal life. They'll be eternally separated from God. Rejection of Jesus is to accept the penalty of sin. I think what we see in the demons is the fullness of complete rejection of God. You think, how can somebody, or how can these demons, if they know what's going to happen to them, how can they still have a hatred towards Jesus? How can they still? Well, I think we see the fullness of complete rejection of God. And for those who've rejected Christ, you've accepted, I will take the penalty for my sin on my own. I will take the consequence of rejecting Christ there is an eternal consequence for that as well. Why do I say that now? Is because we don't hear that enough today. That there are consequences for rejecting Christ. Verse 11. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons entreating him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now the pigs now pigs were declared unclean animals by Mosaic law, right? They were unclean. So we know this was a very Gentile region. So the demons beg Jesus to send them into the pigs, and Jesus permits them. And consequently, about 2,000 pigs run across the, the, over the steep hill and drown into the sea. Now if you're like me, you're thinking, all oh, that bacon. I just cooked bacon yesterday morning. Really good bacon. I couldn't help but think of this story all that bacon gone to waste. I know, I get it. I praise God that there's no longer the the, the food restrictions for us, right? We can eat pork. But this was a big deal for the people at the time as well. Pigs had a big cultural role in that society, in that community, not only for food, but pigs were also used as sacrifice. We know especially uh, pigs were used as sacrifice to the Greek goddess Demeter, She was the goddess of agriculture, grain, and fertility. So perhaps maybe there was some kind of uh, temple or something to her in that region. That's possible. But this would be a great financial hit for those who own these pigs. And if they were truly used to sacrifice to their gods or goddesses, Mark is making it clear, Jesus makes a very profound statement, a display of his power and his authority. Verse 14, and their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out of the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon possessed, sitting down clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. So word gets out. Excuse me. The herdsmen go, they go into the towns and the cities, and word gets out what happened to this man and what Jesus had done. And when they came to see what had happened, they find the man who was once naked, out of his mind, couldn't be bound, clothed, and in his right mind, calmed down. It's interesting, the same word Mark uses to describe the people's reaction is the same as the disciples' reaction when Jesus calmed the sea. The townspeople were frightened we see in, in Jesus when He rebuked the winds the disciples feared, and that same term is used to describe when Jesus rebukes the demons that the townspeople feared. Same word. same description. So we see Mark making this parallel. Jesus had divine authority over the wind and the waves. He silenced and calmed it. And here in the example, Jesus has divine authority over the spiritual realm, over the demonic. He quiets and calms, it, calms them down. But the reaction is the same. The disciples were fearful and in awe. But here the townspeople were in fear. But see, instead of rejoicing, The people begged Jesus to leave their region. Jesus not only hurt their pocketbooks, but they feared the power that Jesus had. Instead of seeing Jesus' mercy, they said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Get away. Perhaps they were afraid of what Jesus would do, even into their own culture, even to their own society. So many people fear that. They fear that if we let Jesus in, he's going to change everything. And we don't want that change. We'd rather have Jesus get away. Just I don't want anything to do with it because I'm afraid of what may happen. What changes would take place. Verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim unto Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, it's interesting. We have this situation where the man begs Jesus, says, can I follow you? And he says, no. It's interesting that we have no comment by Jesus from the people telling him to leave. We don't have Jesus commenting them commenting on their lack of faith, their lack of, or their, their presence of fear. He simply, far we know, leaves. They are fearful of the power and the mercy of God, but this was not the case of the man. It's interesting, the man begs Jesus and Jesus to be allowed to follow him. Now we see this four times in this passage we read, where they begged Jesus. Four mentions of this Greek word. That means to call to one side, to address, to beg, to entreat. Verse 10, we see, and it began, the demon-possessed man, to entreat Jesus earnestly, not to send the demons out of the country. Verse 12, we see the demons entreat Jesus saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Verse 17, we see the townspeople began to entreat Jesus to depart from their region. And then in verse 18, and as he was getting to the boat, the man who was demon-possessed entreats Jesus saying that he might accompany him. So here we see four situations where they're begging Jesus Demon possessed man, to not send the demons away out of the country, the demons to not to have Jesus send them into the pigs. The townspeople beg Jesus, leave our region, leave our area. The demon possessed man, after being healed and delivered, begs Jesus to allow him to go with him. Here we see again. Mark makes it clear Jesus is in authority. And power is on display here. It's interestingly, the one plea, the one entreatment that Jesus does not grant out of the four is the one that we would expect him to. Of the four examples, we would expect the one that he does not grant be the one that he would allow happen. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. I think it shows us that good intentions are not always God's intentions. Good intentions are not always God's intentions. Think about this man. He had good intentions. He wanted to follow Jesus. We would think, why wouldn't he? Doesn't doesn't he want us all to follow him? But God had other plans. Jesus instructs him to remain and report to all the great things the Lord has done for you and tell them of the mercy you received. What a basic but amazing report to tell. Report of what Jesus had done for you. And what happens? He spreads it. He tells it and it spreads across the region Decapolis, this region that is heavily Gentile, this region that is heavily pagan, Hellenized. He says, go and you tell the people you know what you experienced. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. And what does he do? He tells them, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Let me tell you the mercy that Jesus showed me. It's interesting. We may think, why didn't Jesus? Perhaps it was not time to have a Gentile follower with him in a heavily Jewish region, right? That's possible. Perhaps it's because you can be a witness and people will know you. They know your circumstance. They heard you day and night. They saw you out of your mind. And you can testify, and they would understand the report. They can't deny it. What's our takeaways of this story? It's interesting. Mark doesn't, in, in Mark's account, we don't get the same account as Matthew and Luke in the sense we don't have a lot of Jesus' teaching extrapolated and and, and um, detailed out like Matthew and Luke does. But what Mark does do is show us what Jesus did. And if you're like me, sometimes we learn a lot about someone by seeing what they do and not just what they see. So what do we see about what Jesus did in this story? The first thing, again, we'd see Jesus' divine power and authority. It was important for Mark to point out And illustrate very elaborately Jesus' divine power and authority in bold fashion. By spoken word, he quiets the sea and the wind. And by spoken word, he quiets the demons and casts them out. He has power and authority over the demonic, over the evil spirits essential message for us is for the early believers to communicate that Jesus was no mere mortal. He was not just a person. He was not just a teacher. He was not some radical moralist. He was the eternal son of God. He was the Messiah to come. And this message is central for us today for us to understand, to an unbelieving world, to be able to say, look, Jesus is more than just a person in history who came to teach something. He is the eternal Son of God. It's interesting that the demons could not hide, but they bowed before the Holy One, the Son of the Most High God, and they begged for mercy. And the people were left in fearful awe. The God that quiets the storms, the God that quieted the demonic, is the same God that wants to quiet the storms in our life. He's greater than the demonic influences that are all around us. And we need to understand Jesus' power and authority in our life. The second thing we see Jesus' mission of mercy for one. For one. Jesus left a multitude of people before he crossed the sea. He set out at night to cross. We don't even know this person's real name, but God does. This man was plagued with many demons, a number we don't truly know. He was an outcast. He was a menace to society. Physical chains could not bind the man, but he was shackled by spiritual demons Yet Jesus had a mission of mercy for one. This one. This outcast. We take for granted that God is so personal. Many believe that God is distant. Many people say, I believe in God, but God is not personal. He doesn't care about my problems. There's too many things, other things to think about and to worry about. But we see... What did Jesus tell them? Tell people of the mercy you received. God is a God of mercy. He extends when others reject. He forgives even when we struggle to forgive. Even when we struggle to forgive ourselves. God wants to show us mercy to give us forgiveness. He restores what was left destroyed. How many of you ever played the game Mercy? You ever played the game Mercy? You know what that the game Mercy is? You, get, you lock hands with somebody, and as soon as you lock hands, what do you do? The object of the game is to create pain, inflict, inflict pain on each other. And the first person who cannot take the pain anymore, what do they say? Mercy, right? Have you not all played that before? Okay, you have. You're looking at me like, what kind of games did you play? (laughs) Why do we do that with God? Not that God is inflicting pain on us, but we wait for us to reach the threshold of pain that we cannot take anymore, and then what do we cry out for? We expect God to show us mercy, See, so many times we wait. We, we inflict all the consequences of our actions. We allow this, so many stuff happen in our life, and we wait for so long to cry out to mercy for God. God is a God of mercy. And if you think, if you're hearing this over here, thinking you are unforgivable, you've done things that you feel like is unforgivable. No one else could forgive you. You're a hopeless cause. In this story, Jesus shows us that you are not beyond His reach. You are not a hopeless cause. No matter what other people may see in you, whatever other people have classified you as, whatever people or whatever you may feel yourself as, you are not outside of God's mercy out of His reach. What an amazing story that Jesus crosses the sea into a region that other many many Jews of the time would say that's an unclean region for one man. He didn't go out into the towns. He didn't go out healing a bunch of people. One man and the town came to him and said leave our area and he leaves. It's amazing. Yet think about the seeds that were planted by this one man. The third thing, the third takeaway from the story, Jesus' intention for the many. As Jesus took the time for one, he did not neglect the many. He didn't tell that man, you know what? You come with me. All these ungrateful people, all these people who reject me, they're on their own. Go ahead, come with me. He says, this is what I want you to do. You go and report what the Lord has done for you. You tell them of the mercy you received. Jesus didn't neglect the many. He said, I want you to be my witness. Witness to the many. Testify of what God has done for you. This shows us the idea that we're all called to be witnesses of Jesus. We may not all be pastors. You're not all going to be pastors. Is there a relief? Do you feel a sense of relief? You know, if someone was to tell me when I was a kid, not all of you are going to be pastors, I would have been relieved. Oh, good. But see, we all have different roles. We're all called as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, to be witnesses Witnesses to the people who know us. Witnesses to our environment, our surrounding. To tell people of the great things the Lord has done. The mercy that we have received. We all deserve to go to hell. Left on our own. That would be our destination. But of God's mercy. That he died for our sins. We say, Jesus, we, want, we believe you are our Lord and Savior. We receive your salvation, your forgiveness. We don't have to, that, that is not our destination. That is not our home. And the world needs to know there is hope. The world needs to know there is mercy. I love that Jesus did not neglect the many. He came for one, but also he made sure that many were reached. I challenge all of us to look beyond our reasons for God's intervention and see how we can respond for his glory. I'll say that again. I challenge us to look beyond our reasons. We all ask for God to intervene in our lives in different ways. I don't know what it will mean for you in your circumstances. You want God to do something in your life. Maybe it's drastically changed something. Maybe it's something internal, some kind of internal struggles. Maybe it's outwardly, whatever it may be. I challenge us to say, God, the outcome of our circumstances, the outcome of what you do for me, may I be a witness for you that I can testify to those who need to hear it of your mercy and your goodness. This world needs to know of God's mercy and goodness, forgiveness, love, kindness. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you care for the one. Not just the one, but the one who was so out of his mind, was a social outcast. Yet, Lord, you crossed the sea and delivered that man. And that man went on to be a witness of God's mercy and goodness. Testified of Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's burdened with the question can I be reached? Does God care for me? Can I receive God's mercy? We pray, Lord, your Spirit would speak to them. That they may know they can receive God's mercy. They are not beyond reach. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be witnesses, especially in this world, Lord God, This world that is feared, fearful, and lost, and confused, and hurting, and alone. We pray, Lord, that there will be a movement of your Holy Spirit in the lives of your people to be a witness to them that they may see the goodness of God. We thank you, Lord, and praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship.